You're listening to the Plane Talking UK podcast, the UK-based podcast written by a passenger for anyone. And here is your host, it's Mr. Carl Stebbings. Well, <laughs> hello and welcome to episode number oh, 61. Are you sure about that? Oh, I think so. <laughs> yes, 61 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. I'm Carl Stebbings and I am this week in Matt Smith's conservatory studio. Oh, oh the full title. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not Matt will do. It's all right. It's fine. Okay. You know, the, the bowing okay, and curtsying can take okay. place another time. It's fine. So good, good morning, Matt. Uh, good morning. How are we? Uh, very well. Very well. Splendid. Another uh, gloriously sunny day. With, Indeed, yes. yes. It's going to be a bit noisy, I think, because um, it's, it's quite a nice day on and off here. Mm. And uh, we're, we're going to hear the old uh, pi- parachute plane, I yep. think, going backwards and forwards. Dear, dear Stuart flying that like a mad thing, I should imagine. Yes, they're using runway 27 this morning right. what at does, my what does local that airfield, which means they'll, they'll be taking off directly behind us. Okay. Uh, right. Into the air, which will be quite nice to see. Okay, mm. good. So I, how's your week been? Uh, it's, it's all right. I survived. That's all we can hope for. No London's then? <laughs> no, no, I no. have been spared. No, I said Richmond Golf Park on Monday. Oh, I did see your was it your post you had on Facebook. Possibly, yeah, yes. Yeah. So I went to go and pick, to, pick some people over at Watton. That was nice. Oh, that was nice. And then uh, Wyndham on Tuesday. Ooh. Uh, Wednesday was Berry St Edmunds. Ooh. Oh, I must tell you a little story. It was quite funny, actually. I, I parked up uh, at, there's a coach, but there's a lorry park just outside uh, Berry St Edmunds, sort of Sudbury area, or, or on the Sudbury Road, I should say. And I got as far as, uh, I'd never actually been into Berry St Edmunds, and they used to do a free taxi, which they don't now. And it was a really gorgeous day, as I'm sure you know, certainly. Well, mm. certainly here in, in East Anglia, Wednesday was a glorious day. So I walked into Berry St Edmunds. That was fine. I got my Google Maps out to find, you know, the bit that I wanted to get to. Had a lovely day, walked around. And Abbey Gardens, stunning. I mean, it was a really beautiful, really beautiful day. And I recommend Bury St Edmunds as a nice place to go and have a walk. Here in the UK. Indeed. And yes. the market is amazing as well. So if you haven't been to Bury St Edmunds, you must go. Uh, I got uh, started to wander back. Uh, it got really well. I got to this point and then suddenly I was lost. I had no idea where I was. You lost? I got lost. I had no idea where <laughs> I was. I didn't know where the coach park was. Or anything. I was trying to find it. Go, the the, uh, the coach park isn't on Google Maps, I, I later discovered. Uh, it is now because I put it there. Uh, <laughs> it was just, I was literally five minutes. I was getting so panicky. I was five minutes away from phoning a taxi and saying, help, Blimey. I'm on this road here. Please take me to there. But it's all right. I found it in the end. Yeah. I, I walked nearly four miles by the time I'd found it. Oh, wow. That's how lost I got. Blimey. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But you're here now. I am. Yes. Good. No. I survived. Yes. And um, um, as uh, from last week's segment with Pip, you uh, you uh, you were in your coach. I was in my coach, not yes. a yes. bus. We're not going to. Uh, poor Pip. I really don't mind. I'm sorry that we're giving you such a hard time about it. <laughs> yes. Yes. Go on, Blimey. Right. So Indeed. yes. It's uh, the date today is the sixteenth of May. It is, yes, and it's just coming up to twenty past ten 20 in the past morning. 10, agreed, yes, yes. Yes, mother, mother's having a busy baking session because it's the street market in Bunker yes. tomorrow. So, you'll probably uh, hear some uh, crashing yes. of um, of bakery type utensils. Dear listener, you would not want to be here right now because oh, the terrible. smell is just oh, the I mean, smell. and we've had bacon mm. rolls. Yeah, it's just it's just not cutting through the onion, uh, the onion and the garlic, and oh, <laughs> it's not fair. Yeah, yeah. There's some we, serious we have, baking going we, on. We have got our fingers crossed for a very exciting uh, coffee break 
midway <laughs> through the show, haven't we? Because we're hoping there may be some yes. cooked goodies waiting. By the day. Anyway, enough about my terrible life. Uh, <laughs> So we're still waiting to hear from um, a guest that we should be we having are, soon. Yes. Um, yes, that hasn't come to fruition, sadly. It, the minute it's because, I think it's probably because uh, the certain guest that we're getting on is mm. currently in Thailand. Oh. Um, and uh, it's, right, it's the, the time difference is slightly um, different. And yeah. But we, fingers crossed, will hopefully be able to have him on next week. Cool. So we're going to kick off the show then, Indeed. as we always do each week with our rundown of the weekly news from around the world. And the UK. So, if you're ready, Matt. I am. I'm, I'm bacon fueled and ready to rock. Let's go. So, kicking off this week's first news story then on the Business Traveller site. And those of you who listened to last week's episode, mm. episode six, do you remember we were talking about Malaysian Airlines um, selling off or um, renting out or leasing some of their A3 or all of their A380s? Yeah. Uh, so the story then this week uh, that May- Malaysia Airlines is to keep um, one Airbus A380 on its London Heathrow route. Uh, Malaysia Airlines has confirmed that its twice-daily A380 service between Kuala Lumpur and London Heathrow is unlikely to be affected by the cutbacks to its long-haul network. Last week, the airline announced its uh, its new business plan will see some long-haul routes dropped and many of its long-haul planes, especially its 380s and 777-200ERs, being leased or sold. But Weng Chi Li, the carrier's UK and Ireland area manager today, it's ruled a very out English name. It, it is very yeah. English. <laughs> he ruled out any changes on the flagship uh, Kuala Lumpur to London Heathrow route for the uh, foreseeable future. He said, "While oh, the overall structure of the network continues to be evaluated, let me reassure you first and foremost that the twice daily London to Kuala Lumpur service is and remains our flagship route within the network." Malaysian Airlines has been flying uh, between London and Kuala Lumpur for over 40 years and uh, they're proud to serve this popular route with one of the most modern aircraft, the A380. The, uh, there is currently no aircraft in the Malaysian Airlines fleet which could replace the Airbus A380. Um, and there we go. So that's that news story. So they, they're still uh, – I mean the story last week was actually more about uh, – it, it was the first time the, the market was going to be tested essentially, mm. wasn't it, to see uh, – because it would be the first time that sort of you know A380s had become available on the second-hand market, for mm. want of a better word. And uh, so that's still very much going ahead, but they're going to – well, they'll probably keep two, won't they, I would have thought. Yes. You keep yeah, one, I would imagine. one in yeah. service and then yeah. one as a backup, I guess. But um, – but mm. it's good to see. At least, um, at least it must be a, it's, it's, a, a, busy, a busy route. route yeah. There must be people to fill yeah. the seats. So that's that's Absolutely. good. I don't think Malaysian. I don't think Malaysia air, airlines are going to be cutting back for long. If I'm honest, mm. I mean, I've flown. They've had a I've hard. T- they've had a tough time. Have, but yeah, yeah. Obviously, yeah. with a couple of mm. air disasters, both of which were basically not, not really their, their fault. fault. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's uh, it's interesting to see what the, what the overall outcome will be for that, I guess. Anyway, on to the next story. This is on the businessweekly.co.uk website, and the headline is Stansted Passenger Numbers Hit a Six-Year High. Uh, Stansted Airport has passed the 21 million passengers a year total for the first time since May 2009. The milestone comes just three months after breaking through the 20 million par- passenger barrier as annual traffic increased by more than 16%. Over the previous 12 months. In April, more than 1.9 million passengers passed through the UK's fastest growing major airport. 
an increase of 10.7% over the same month last year. And the busiest April at Stansted Airport since 2007. Andrew Harrison, Stansted's Managing Director, said the strong growth of passenger numbers in April maintains the positive upward trend Stansted, Stansted has experienced over the last two years and has enabled us to break through the 21 million passengers a year milestone, just three months after passing the 20 million passengers a year route total. This excellent performance continues to be driven by the additional routes and increased frequencies our airline partners provide to key destinations across Europe and the UK, and the higher number of passengers on each flight to and from Stansted. During the month, we welcomed new Ryanair's routes to uh, Azores and Deville, while this week we see the return of daily flights to Newquay, which I'm sure will prove to be extremely popular as we head into the summer and even more attractive to families following the recent scrapping of air passenger duty for under 12s. Good, good news story, really. Definitely for Stansted. Yeah. But then we, we, we've talked about Stansted quite mm. a bit in the last few months and how busy it is and with the changes they've made and the, 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 and stuff. the numbers are, are definitely higher on what I call the outer reaches, isn't it? Because mm. it's sort of Stansted and Luton are seeing such a regular sort of uptake of numbers. Um, well, there was actually another story this week that Luton had posted um, a really? profit rise again for this month. Right. So, yeah. yeah. That's because they're not sharing any of it with their passengers to <laughs> make their experience more pleasant. Perhaps it's because they, they brought more of those um, freestanding um, ah, the things like to, 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 yeah. Like, yeah, to like bits <laughs> of the airport. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know why they bother with the green one, if I'm honest. <laughs> Just have the red one. <laughs> Yeah. I know what you're If you saying. don't press it, we'll assume you're happy. Exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Perhaps that's what they should do. They should play the um, Pharrell Williams song all, all the time through Luton right. Airport. What, and make people go stir crazy? <laughs> well, <Yeah. laughs> Perhaps they wouldn't be happy then. No? Well, that's true, indeed. So, moving on to our next story yes. on the Quartz website, qz.com. You do find some random... I know. <laughs> um, it's a story we covered um, was it a week or two weeks mm, ago. A few weeks ago now, um, yeah. And this is EasyJet um, being the latest airline to make its uh, planes more cramped. Mm. Um, EasyJet this week um, or to, uh, this week became the latest carrier to say it will up the number of passengers it takes on each flight. The new Airbus A320 planes uh, the budget airline is buying will have 186 seats rather than 180, and old aircraft will be retrofitted to include the extra capacity. Passengers uh, folding themselves into ever more crowded cabins may complain, but according to Airbus, the upping of numbers will be achieved without making the seats narrower. Uh, in addition, another addition to the new design, an onboard bathroom we made, we made access, more accessible to people with reduced mobility, uh, though this will be achieved by knocking two existing bathrooms into one, reducing the number of bathrooms overall on the aircraft. <laughs> right. On some of EasyJet's longer flights, Manchester to Sharm el-Sheikh, a six-hour trip is the longest. The extra people and reduced bathroom capacity is likely to be onerous. There's one tiny upside. In a fuller plane, the individual carbon footprint of each passenger would fall, according to the International Civil Aviation Authority's calculator. A round trip from London to Rome and back, roughly 4,000 kilometres, uses 14,000 kilograms of fuel. That equates to an average carbon dioxide emission of 330 kilograms per person. In a full plane with 186 seats, that would fall to 312 kilograms uh, per person. It's worth noting that there are a lot of carbon emissions calculators online, but few with any explanation of their mythology. 
Furthermore, the airline could in theory carry more people using fewer planes. After 31 full flights at the new higher capacity, a whole plane load, 186 journeys, could be saved. <laughs> but EasyJet has made no claims about helping the environment and indeed is also planning to expand its fleet. In a statement released uh, this week, the company said that one, uh, the more packed planes were expected to deliver a cost per seat saving of 2% compared to their more spacious predecessor. The company's share price fell 8% this week after an announcement through uh, that it's likely connected to long-term outlook rather than because shareholders are worried about legroom or the environment. I must be on. I know I'll probably get shot down for this, literally, but when I'm looking for somewhere to park or fly, the, the last thing I'm worried about is my carbon footprint, frankly. Oh, I know. It's t- terrible to say, but... You're right. I, uh, I, I I'd, ra- think... I'd rather have a few 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 millimeters extra legroom and you know and more mm. bathrooms than worry yeah, about that, my carbon footprint. That is footprint. a worry. Yeah. That is a worry. Even <laughs> even on a, even on a three hour flight to Malta, you still mm. we still I'm always queued up at the toilet. Yeah, at the rear of a, and you know, that's an with extra toilets, and that's with three. Mm. You know, or, yeah. or sometimes even four. But most, yeah. you know, you normally have one at the front. Mm. And two at the rear. And what if somebody's in there a long time? He says, oh, no, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If they're going to narrow, I mean, the 320, I think, has three bathrooms on board at the moment. I, and if I, they take one of those away. I'm sort of st- stuck in the middle because being a big chap, obviously, the, the, the toilets at the moment are so small that it's just. It's it, it's difficult for me to even get in and out. You, you would love the the ones on the three eighty Emirates. Oh really? Yeah. Oh god. Yeah. Are they, are they spacious? So good. Yeah. Oh, huge. Yeah. I, I just. I, it's just. It's a part of me is excited at the fact that there might be a little bit more room for you to literally swing the cat that you always carry with you in your hand. <laughs> in your hand luggage. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah. Nah. 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 I'd rather just put up with not being able to use the loo very easily and have a have a bit more legroom, frankly. Mm. Although they do claim that it's not going to make any difference. I can't see how that's possible if they're going to basically put in a whole nut extra row. Mm. I don't really see how they how it's not going to impact on um legroom, frankly. Well, we'll see. We'll, we'll see what see. the reports. Yes. There'll be someone complaining online. Watch this space, yes. I think. Next story is on the buying business travel website and the headline is Luton Airport passengers numbers rise. Ah. Oh, here we go. Yes. Uh, Luton Airport has posted a rise in passenger numbers for April, making the 13th consecutive month of growth. The airport recorded an 11.4% increase in passenger numbers during last month compared to the same period the year before with 991,110 passengers choosing to fly from the airport. Luton Airport is due to start work on a £100 million redevelopment and very much overdue plan and investment programme. It's expected to deliver an increase in annual capacity from 12 million to 18 million passengers uh, a year by 2026. Nick Nick Barton, airport CEO, said Luton Airport has now recorded over a year of consistently monthly growth in passenger numbers and as people increasingly choose to fly from the airport. This month we have added four new routes and look forward to introducing more as the airport expands during its £100 million investment programme. Not that they're shouting about that in no, every article no. that, that ever appears about Luton. 991,000 passengers a month. Mm. That is a lot of people passing through that airport. Yeah. I don't know why, because it's a horrible airport. At the moment... <laughs> I'm I'm hoping because we've seen so much about this redevelopment program, yeah. 100 million pounds they're spending on Luton Airport. Mm. I, I hope that it 
you know, it, it makes it into a, a, a lot better. I if think any, it will go. It, you know, they can't go wrong. Yeah. If anyone from Luton is listening, <laughs> please, 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 please make it a shorter walk from the departure area to the gates. Oh, Especially yes. when most yes. of the flights that go out of there, let's be honest, are EasyJet and Ryanair. Yes. And you are the furthest you could possibly be away. Uh, the car park is nearer, mm. frankly, than the departure lounge. <laughs> and also, on, on something I've p- picked up on before, when we flew from there um, earlier this year, was it this year? Well, last, I can't remember now. Mm. It's been such a long while since I've been on holiday. Um, <laughs> what? Need, they need way, way more seats in the mm. departure lounge. Yeah. Well, we were lucky because we we were in the departure land really really early. I mean, we, oh, were, we were waiting. Then. We were waiting for places to open. That's how early we were. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, we'd we'd been sat there about an hour hour and a half. I think by the time we didn't get um, seats. Yeah, well, it we we were terrible. very we were lucky. We were very lucky that we did get seats. Frankly, but, yeah, uh, it mm. does lack that anyway. Indeed. Next news: uh, business traveller site. This one and Korean Air postpones Boeing seven four seven eight service to Heathrow. Oh Korean Air has postponed its seven four seven eight service between Seoul, Incheon, and London Heathrow by one month. The national carrier had planned to roster the aircraft on the route on August the second, uh, but will now do so on September the second. The 747-8, which features Korean Air's new business class and will replace the incumbent 777-300ER, will initially operate on the route three uh, three times a week on Wednesdays, Fridays and Sundays. Uh, Outbound service KE907 departs Seoul at 1300 hours and arrives in London at 1725. While the return service KE908 leaves London at 1935 and lands in Seoul at 1425 the next day. From September the 30th, the aircraft will fly to London Heathrow on a daily basis, reports uh, airlineroute.net. The 747-8 will be configured in three classes with six seats in first class, only six, Blimey. Uh, 48 in prestige business class and yeah. 314 in economy. The entire upper deck houses 22 business class seats in a 2-2 layout, with the remaining 26 seats on the main deck in a 2-2-2 configuration. Korean Air introduced the new prestige suite uh, cabin seat, which it debuted on a A330-300, currently serving flights to Blimey, Gangzhou, <laughs> Singapore, and Hanoi last month. Mm. So Korean Air, because th- um, Lufthansa have got yes. the 747-8, right. and Korean Air are, I think, only the third airline in, in okay. the world to take the new latest right. 747 um, aircraft into a passenger-type oh, cool. um, service. This, ah. is, this is the Dash 8 has a slightly stretched upper deck. Of the jumbo, I mean, the jumbo jet has the the top deck. Yes, the bubble on t- mm. the bubble on top. The, the dash eight has a slightly stretched one, and it's a slightly larger aircraft. Really? Yeah, but I, I, Karina, I, I've Kar- been uh, business class once, and it was the most amazing experience I've ever had in my life. So, what on earth these six first, first class, class six spaces only are. six? But then, do they really sell that? Because most people, you know, eye up business class, don't they? Well, a lot of airlines are phasing out first class. Yeah, I'm and not just surprised. having business. Well, because most people are that's enough isn't it mm. you know business class we, with the lie flat beds and 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 lots of space and nice toilets and the thing of it is and all that. if for the price of some of these airlines first class seats mm. say to the states mm. you could probably hire a private a private jet, jet. <laughs> yeah yeah 
Yeah, sounds about right, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. Especially if you shared the cost. Well, yes, <laughs> this is true. We'll yeah. go halves. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, lovely. I'll um I'll I'll see which bank I can rob first, <laughs> shall I? <laughs> okay, on to the next story. Uh, and uh, this is the next big future website. Ooh. And the headline, you have another random I website know, well I done. Know. Uh, Boeing 777X will build on 787 Dreamliner technology as the largest and most efficient twin-engine jet. The Boeing 777X is twin-engine, twin-aisle, uh, will be will build on the success of the 777 and the 787 Dreamliner. The 777X is the largest and most efficient twin-engine jet in the world. Its folding raked, sorry, its folding raked wingtips and opt- optimized scan deliver greater efficiency, significant fuel savings, and complete airport gate compatibility. And with its GE9X engine, it's the most advanced fuel-efficient commercial engine ever. Performance, however, is just part of the story. The cabin interior of the 777X is inspired by the comforts and conveniences of the 787 Dreamliner and will include larger windows, a a wider cabin, new lighting and enhanced architecture, all of which will be custom-tailored for a unique 777X experience. The 777X will feature new engines, new composite material wings and technologies from the Boeing 787. In December 2014, Boeing began construction on a new 367,000 square foot composite facility in St. Louis to build 777X parts. Completion is set for 2016. The expansion will create around 700 new jobs. The facility will feature six autoclaves with work on the 777X wing and uh, Mpeng parts. Is it Mpeng? Mpenage? E-M-P-E-N-N-A-G-E. <laughs> parts to start in 2017. There are already about 300 firm orders. In May 2015, Boeing announced that it would convert the current 787 surge line at Everett by the end of 2015 into an early production line for the 777X, with the first 777X expected to roll off that line in 2018. Design plans call for the 777X to feature cabin design details that were originally introduced on the Boeing 787 Dreamliner. These include larger windows than prior commercial aircraft, increased cabin pressure equivalent to 6,000 feet, uh, that's 1,800 meters altitude, higher ceilings and more humidity. Structural changes are are required versus the original 777 fuselage design in order to incorporate these design improvements as well as greater cabin width. Folding wingtips to fit the current 777 size category are planned for the 777X as well. I'm sorry about that. It's not the most easiest story to read. I know, I that's don't a know huge quite, one. don't quite know why that doesn't scan so well. But anyway, you look like you've got some stats. Yeah, just looking up, Ben, on the 777X, they've mm. got the Dash 8 and Dash 9, as you yeah. said. Um, the Dash 8 um, is ru- is roughly posted at having a price of uh, around $360 million. Mm. The Dash 9, being slightly bigger, has a price of around about $388 mm. million. Yeah. Um, the aircraft themselves, um, firm orders, yep. um, one of the launch customers being Emirates, mm. um, also Lufthansa as yeah. well, Etihad, another... Um, one from over there, sort of the Emirates side yeah. of the wing, and Cathay Pacific as well. Oh, 
uh, Qatar Airways mm. and Al Nippon Airways ah, as yes. well yes. have also um, put firm orders in for 20 of the uh, Dash 9s, the larger Indeed. ones. Uh, look, looking at the um, specifications uh, in front of me here, Cockpit Crew 2. Seating capacity on the 7788X is 350 in a three-class configuration. Uh, and uh, on the 777-9X, 406. That's quite a few that's people. A that's huge, a lot of people, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Length, 228 feet, 2 inches, obviously, 69.5 metres. Uh, that's for the 777, that's for the 8X. And the 9X, 251 um, feet long, uh, 76 meters um so yeah it's quite um, powered by general electric ge9x uh, engines yeah uh, no no weight as uh, operating weights and things uh triple a uh the, the, the dash doesn't yeah. doesn't have any yet but the dash nine i think it's going to weigh around about three hundred and sixty-two thousand pounds or 164,202 kilograms empty which, which empty, is quite yeah, a weight isn't it really it is, yeah. but i can't wait to see this aircraft i mean mm. uh, um it'll be it's i mean they've big, got pictures They've got pictures on. I mean, like the picture on the site there mm. looks really nice with the um, does. Boeing. The because there's the Dreamline. If you remember, had the blue, yes, the blue is. coloured mm. um, livery when they had the test yeah. aircraft. This one's got a kind of what would you? That's that, um, kind of like a, it sounds like it's ready for Virgin Atlantic. Yeah, with kind, of, kind of a darker red. red yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it'd be good. I can't wait to see that one when it's uh, when yeah, it's, can, it comes out. So next story, Flight Global, mm. and. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had the crash of the Asiana 320 yeah. that uh, landed slightly too soon. Yes. And uh, the, uh, the re- report from that crash, the Japanese investigators have indicated that uh, the Asiana Airlines Airbus A320 began to deviate from its de- uh, descent path shortly after its autopilot was disengaged before it collided with the localizer antenna at Hiroshima. The A320 had been conducting the Area Navigation, or RNAV, approach to runway 28 on the 14th of April. It hit an approach light at a height of 4 metres before carving through the antenna. Um, Flight OZ162 subsequently veered off the runway, suffering substantial airframe damage. Preliminary findings by the Japan Transport Safety Board show that the weather conditions were not ideal with light rain and fog reducing visibility on the runway to 300 metres in places. The aircraft passed the final approach fix at a height of just above 3,000 feet and initially followed the correct descent profile. Its autopilot was disconnected at around 2,100 feet, but the inquiry's data indicates that after this switch to manual operation, the A320 began to drift below the normal glide path. Its airspeed staged largely around a constant 130 knots, according to the flight data recorder data released by the JTSP, or JTSP Japan mm-hmm. Safety Transportation Board. The glide path deviation gradually became more pronounced until the aircraft hit the localizer, situated uh, 325 meters before the runway. Just two seconds before impact, the recorder data indicates an attempted go-around with changes to the side stick input and the engine thrust lever positions. After destroying the antenna, the A320 shed debris on the runway before reaching um, the main part of the runway threshold. It's aft fuselage making ground contact 148 metres short and its main landing gear following at 136 metres. It travelled 725 metres along the runway but then started veering to the left and exited 
1,154 metres from the threshold, coming to a rest facing almost in the opposite direction. Passengers evacuated uh, the aircraft through slides, suffering only minor injuries during the accident. Asiana had previously disclosed the aircraft's captain had accumulated over 8,200 hours and the first officer nearly 1,600 hours. Investigators have yet to determine the primary cause and are contributing elements to the event. Now, I saw these, um, if you go on um, Aviation Herald, mm-hmm. uh, brilliant, fantastic website, yeah. aviationherald.com, uh, um, there's uh, the report on this and the pictures um, from the crash site. Mm. And you can see it's, it's kind of a mess. Mm. It uh, definitely wiped out uh, the localizer antenna and the lights and stuff, and some of which were wrapped around the undercarriage of the aircraft and um, skidded off the runway to, vir- to face virtually the opposite direction to what it came into landing. But given the fact that they're, um, I mean, they're essentially boasting that it's very, very, well, they're not boasting as such, are they? But they're, they're saying that, I mean, these pilots had a lot of experience. Mm. Yeah. I, I, we, I hope they do get to the bottom of what it was because something went clearly went horribly wrong. It says they switched the autopilot off. Yeah. Manual control, so hands on. Is that normal? And, and that's normal. Yeah. And then and just things went, just went. So yeah. the only thing I can think of is the instrumentation must have been feeding them the wrong information. Possibly. Possibly. I mean, what else would not be funny with experienced pilots? I can't see how there would be any other explanation. You know, unless. It was basically being they were being told the, the wrong height or something like that. I can't mm. see how they would get it so catastrophically wrong. I mean, anybody out there who's got any guesses as to as to what the outcome was? I mean, we're, we're, we're I'd very much like to speculate. I expect on, on the um, I expect Captain Jeff will probably profile this on uh, one of these yeah, episodes of the Alan Pilot guy. Yeah, no, definitely. So next story, indeed, yes, next story, uh, and this is from Flight Global. Uh, and it's a picture-based story, actually, um, which is Vietnam Airlines. Vietnam Airlines first Boeing seven eight seven dash nine completes Ooh. exterior. Painting I love this color. Overview. This color is awesome. This is kind of like a cyan, what I call a cyan blue, isn't mm. it? It's sort of a sea. Really blue. nice. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Vietnam Airlines first Boeing seven eight seven dash nine has rolled out of Boeing's paint shop at Payne Field less than a month after it came off the final assembly line. The aircraft, which bears the registration VN. Dash A861 will now undergo interior fit out before conducting ground and flight tests prior to delivery to the state owned carrier. This is expected to take place later uh, later on in the year, it says. Um, some cracking photos here, as you say. It's ma- the majority of it is a sort of what I call an aqua blue, isn't it? A sort mm. of dark aqua blue. With a kind of gold cheat line along yeah. And then a, a white underbelly. And then the Vietnam Airlines uh, logo, essentially, just above the windows. Mm. Uh, but it, yeah, And a white underbelly, uh, which I guess you would expect mm. with, mo- with most of these planes. But uh, no, it's a very smart-looking aircraft. Uh, the airline is also on track to take delivery of its first Airbus A350-900 around the middle of the year. It has indi- It is indicated that both types will be used on domestic and international services. Flight Global's Ascend database uh, shows that Vietnam Airlines holds orders for 14 of the A350-900s and 17 of the 17 of the 787-9s. So for those of you who, uh, if you go onto Flight Global's, mm. uh, site and, uh, you go on to Flight Global's site, you can check out the pictures on there of this aircraft because uh, that is uh, it's probably one of, the, um, one of my favourite um, airline liveries, I think. 
um, there on the mm. Vietnam Airlines one. Yeah. Very because I do I do like a blue. Absolutely. Yes, excellent. No, it's a lovely color, isn't it? Next story, then. Indeed. This one made uh, Matt it made chuckle me laugh earlier. When we were this do, when did we make were him chuckle. The, uh, when we were doing the, <laughs> the, the, the pre-record, yeah. It's, uh... So on the uh, Telegraph travel side, oh. this one, and plane seats, the headline is plane seats that can spot nervous flyers. Yes. So <laughs> <laughs> hmm. you... yes. I, I think it's the smell. I think that's <laughs> – anyway, I'll let you read the story. And we are talking about le- less toilets earlier. <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, new smart <laughs> seats that feature built-in heart rate monitors could help flight, uh, flight attendants identify passengers who are feeling ill or anxious. So developed by four students at the Delft University of Technology in Netherlands the, uh, in a collaboration with KLM Airlines and the aircraft equipment manufacturer Zodiac Aerospace, the concept was shortlisted for an award after, uh, at the recent Aircraft Interiors Expo in Hamburg. The sensors in the seat would send data on the passenger's heart rate to an app called Flightbeat. The information is presented to flight staff as a colour-coded seat map indicating which passenger might need attention. Unwell or nervous passengers typically have a faster heart rate. It's hoped uh, the app could help prevent costly emergency landings caused by those who wait too long before alerting the crew when they're feeling unwell. Mm. The students are aware the privacy issues that may be of concern, so flyers could choose uh, not to have their heart rate activity measured by adjusting a setting on their seat. The app determines passengers' emotional status using software approved by the Heart Math Institute, which can translate heart rhythm patterns into emotion. Merth Mononkoff uh, and Quirin Van Walt Meyer, two of the app's designers, told InFlightOnline.com. Passengers would even be able to share their heart rate and emotional status with people not on their flight via an in-flight Wi-Fi connection. The designers hoped this would feature uh, this feature would give any nervous passengers who chose not to share their data with crew the option to seek comfort of their friends or family. Seat sensors technology was already being developed by the American car manufacturer Ford prior to KLM's project and is expected to be used in cars by 2020. According to the students who have worked uh, to adapt this technology for use on aircraft, the data gathered via the app could be potentially used to track other aspects of passenger experience, including the effectiveness of in-flight entertainment in relaxing nervous flyers, which are areas of the aircraft are likely to cause the most discomfort and stress, toilet areas, I expect, (laughs) as well as uh, which parts of the flight journey are the most uncomfortable turbulence most of them and stressful for passengers <laughs> um, the, it reports the app is still uh, at a concept uh, concept stage and has only been tested in prototype form it would require further development and official certification before its production uh, flamina del conte one of the students told the mail it will be interesting to look deeper at the possible connections with smartwatches in 2020. Mm. We've got one of those, haven't we? I have, yes. Uh, that Only could, a basic to, one. Yeah, together with Flightbeat, deliver added value to the experience of a passenger on board, these students told inflightonline.com. Mm. So there we go. A seat that could um, potentially tell the cabin crew that you're not feeling all that well. Right. Now, <laughs> that's, that's all well and good. Do you know where I would put this technology? And this, this very much piggybacks onto uh, pip segment last week on the week. flight deck for me it would i would rather that the pilot's well-being was being yeah. heavily that's, monitored that's, that's, yeah, that's if, if i'm honest idea, if i'm honest yeah. with, with with as i say as pip covered uh, rather expertly as always um the 
the effect that just having like the common cold can can have on your ability to concentrate mm. and to fly and all that kind of thing. For me, I'm sorry, it ought to be in the flight deck. In perhaps, fact, I'm amazed. They will. I'm amazed it isn't already there. No, perhaps they, they might do. Mm. They might do. You that, don't that, that for me is where I'd like it to be. Um, but I'd imagine you being a tech guy who could probably sort of back me up on this with mm. your knowledge. But I'd imagine it's quite an easy um, kind of thing to do, an app to do, or a, a thing to have a heart rate monitor built in a seat sent to an, an app wirelessly. Mm. It doesn't really need to be done wirelessly, does it, really? I mean, the, da- the data collect- co- collecting can be done using hard wiring mm. uh, sort of in yeah. the actual plane. Uh, yes, all right, you want a wireless device to your iPad or whatever it is that's, that you're receiving the information on. But, mm. I mean, I would imagine uh, the, I mean, the bandwidth alone, if it's transmitting that much data, would, would have a detrimental effect um, on your viewing you know, if you're using Wi-Fi in the plane and stuff. Mm. So I think it's more likely that the seats are hardwired into, you know, with network cables or, or the equivalent um, or fibre, whichever whichever route they choose, and, and then you, you, you access the data through wireless means. I, I think it's unlikely to be, you know, wireless seats mm. in, in the long term, uh, especially as that, you know, one of the reasons why they've always refused uh, use by mobiles, and that is because of possible instrumentation interruption. Yes, um, yes. I don't know. I don't know. Interesting the, story. The, the, pic, the picture, funny. I was just seeing the yeah. picture that on this uh, story yeah. on the site. The picture shows a rather um, uh, terrified, terrified passenger yeah. <laughs> close to a window. Yes. Um, I wonder whether she's uh, on an EasyJet flight with whether they've just taken out another toilet. Whether <laughs> it could be. She's she's worried. I'm so sorry, listeners. <laughs> That's all I can say to that. <laughs> okay, so we'll move swiftly on to our uh, our last. Uh, story indeed and this is a a, a rather exciting top 10 this oh, is on one. the flight global website and uh, the uh, the headline is local heroes it's the all-time top 10 regional jets as the regional airline association gathers in cleveland for its 2015 annual convention to celebrate the regional airline industry's glorious past and help chart its future we thought it was a good time to chart the hardware that's getting it there. So ranked by units delivered, here is Flight Global's top 10 regional jets from Flight Global. And in at number 10. So at number 10, then, it's the uh, Dornier 328. That's such a sweet plane. 92 (laughs) of these delivered uh, from 1999, 55 still in service. That's a twin-engine uh, a regional jet. jet. Very, yeah, very nice. Lovely. Very I dainty. Like that. Yeah, that, that'd make a great sort of private plane, wouldn't it? It would. It, it would. Anyway, number nine. Number nine, it's the Fokker 28. Slightly I older you, I one. I beg your pardon. It's slightly <laughs> older, this one. Uh, 224 of these delivered from 1969, yeah. far before me wow. and you were born. Yeah. Uh, 14 still in service. These are a twin-engine jet again uh, with rear-mounted engines, uh, very similar looking to the BAC-111, but a lot shorter. It doesn't scream at you that it's an, uh, such an old plane, does it? No, no, but it is. I yeah. mean, if you if you see the cockpit in one of these, you would oh, right, definitely yeah, see yeah. it's an old plane. I, I, yeah. I guess the outside of the planes haven't really changed that no. much in, in, in all this time. Anyway, a number eight. At number eight, another Fokker 70, uh, 319 delivered from 1988 with 235 still in service. Gosh, that's a popular one, isn't it? Again, another twin-engine jet with the engines mm. mounted at the rear. Mm. But what are the benefits of, of it being rear? Uh, is it just a design 
No, there, there is a reason for it. It, uh, it provides a slightly quieter environment for the cabin because right. having the engines back there, mm. obviously um, um, the cabin further forward, obviously the, all the yeah. rest of the cabin is very, a lot quieter. Mm. Um, and they also um, may need to done because of, as well, because of the, having the engines under the, uh, slung under the wing. Yeah. Um, generally, sometimes can pick up debris, debris and stuff. Yeah. But where these, these engines are up high, they make yeah. for good short field takeoffs okay. uh, and landings where there's not much um you know the runway surface might not be uh, that great there's also a lot of there's a whole host of other reasons why they um why they have the rear mass is, is it pre- predominantly in older aircraft then, yes it's a mostly older aircraft yeah. um biz jets new biz jets mm. tend to have their engines at the back mm. air but again for quietness yeah for having a, a lot well of i suppose cabin. obviously you know sort of insulation and things has improved mm. no end so that so perhaps um where the engines are mounted are less of an issue than it used to be perhaps but anyway number seven Number seven, a BAE-146 or Avro RJ. Uh, 304, uh, 54 of these delivered from 1996, 211 still in service. This one's a four-engine regional jet. These ones you probably see flying out of London City Airport. Right. Um, and they're also used all around the world, these ones. There's also uh, one of these based in RJ in mm. the UK, which does a lot of meteorological surveying Ooh. in the sky. It has lots of probes and uh, extra lumps and bumps on and stuff like that. Oh, okay. At number six. At number six, it's the Embraer 170 or the 175. These um, Embraer's uh, regional jets, 464 delivered from 2004. Uh, with 463 Gosh. in service. These are res- relatively new mm, aircraft. Very popular, by the way. Um, me and Jem, were on the, we went on the 170 right. uh, last year. Mm-hmm. Very good, very lovely um, aircraft. To uh, be on. It, it, it's smaller, smaller jet, is it? Smaller, yeah. uh, and it's it's kind of it's three and then two. Oh, yeah. So three and then two, the other yeah. side. But a um, little pocket rocket, that one. Number five. Number five, another Embraer 190. And this one, uh, 655 delivered uh, from 2005 with 700, uh, 649 in service. So judging by that, used by Thompson quite a lot as well. Yeah, that's mm. uh, Jet Air is mm. uh, one of Thompson's um, sort of subsidiaries uh, in, in Europe, yeah. yeah. Number four. Number four, the Bombardier CRJ 700 and the 900 and the 1,000 as well. 718 of these delivered from 2001 with 710 in Blimey. service. Another rear-mounted, if you look at the picture there, mate, you'll mm. see how high the engines are mm. mounted yeah. at the rear. Um, right out of the way. Right out of the way yeah. of everything, yeah. Mm. Uh, number three. Number three is a Russian-built one, the Yakolov uh, Yak-40. Um, a massive 866 of these delivered uh, from 1966, huh? with 97 still Gosh. in service. Even after all this time. Uh, this one being a three-holer, mm-hmm. as we call them, three-engine, one yep. uh, on the, on the tail and two at the rear, mounted side fuselage, mounted engines, three-engine, uh, but a short, very um, small, small little uh, regional jet, this one. Cool. Number two. Number two, another Embraer, ERJ-135. Uh, 890 of these delivered from 1996, with 841 still in service. Rear-mounted mm. engines again on this mm. one. And uh, we see the picture on here. This one is operated by Rotana Airways. So, the majority of the regional jets are essentially this rear-engine configuration mm. by the look of it. Yeah. In and out quickly. Yeah. Yes. And finally, at number one. So at number one... It uh, is another Bombardier CRJ100 and the 200 series. Mm. Uh, a massive 1,021 delivered from 1992 with 842 
uh, still in service. Uh, the CRJ100 ER um, being used quite a lot in the uh, US by uh, a lot of the US airlines, including American Eagle. Uh, another uh, t- tail-mounted um, uh, fuselage side-by-side right. engines here, one each side, uh, two-engine mm. aircraft. And, uh, yeah, another popular one. Lovely. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. So that's where we bring uh, this uh, part of the show uh, segment to a close. Civil aviation, Civil aviation, nicely wrapped up. We've got uh, we've got a segment from Pip. We've yep. also got some military news, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, we've got that coming up to you uh, after our coffee break. Mm. So I'll go and put kettle on. I'll go and put the kettle on. Excellent. And we'll be back after this. Aviation media has long been the domain of the newspapers and magazines. Well, not anymore. I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran, and we're bringing aviation right into your radio. Yes, we're making aviation cool and interesting for everyone. Hang on, aviation's always been cool. Check this out. How cool is this? Grant, Grant, turn that down. Here at Plane Crazy Down Under, we've got pilots, engineers, air traffic controllers, industry leaders, even politicians dropping by to talk to us about the amazing world of aviation right here in Australia and occasionally in New Zealand as well. Wow, that's cooler than I thought, mate. Find us at planecrazydownunder.com, on iTunes, or lurking about on other people's podcasts just like this one. We've got crazy accents and lots of great aviation content. And we promise not to talk about the cricket. No, never. Not the cricket. Quack, 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 quack. <laughs> what is cricket anyhow? Something we win a lot. Oh, there oh. <laughs> Nice was right stereo. Pan. I know that was that was that was loud. It was. It yes. was. So we're back. We are. Yes, we've uh, we've had. Um, oh, we've had. It's been a bit of scones. Very, yes. Fruit had scones. Fruit scones. And, uh, yes, mean, scones. scones. Fresh scones. <laughs> fresh out of the oven. Fresh <laughs> out of the oven. Snob. <laughs> we yes, we had fruit scones yes. and um, we've had uh, orange juice mm. with bits. No. Yes. Seriously, coffee. if you are anywhere near Bungie tomorrow the 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 country market is going to be country market stall is definitely the one that i'm going to have to turn up to and purchase loads of food from okay really yeah yeah, i'm definitely going to go there tomorrow yeah i would yeah so your uh, your your mother mother will be there tomorrow then selling loads of cakes and stuff (laughs) right yes (laughs) excellent i can't wait Yes, we're recording. Okay, <laughs> right. I don't know what's going on. Caught you off guard yes. there, didn't I? I know. <laughs> sorry, nappy we'll again, listeners. We'll I'm in. so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> ah, yes. So, as we said, uh, we're uh, we're ready to go then on uh, the military segment we of are. this show. We've got a few stories to go through. One sad one to begin with mm. uh, from yes, earlier um, last week. Earlier in the week, yeah. So, uh, if you're ready, Matt. Well, apparently not, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. Let's go. So, kicking off this week's first news story, then on Flight Global site, yeah. uh, the sad news, of course, uh, of the Airbus A400M crash, mm-hmm. and uh, the head of Airbus Defence and Space Military Aircraft Division has committed the company to full transparency once the factors behind the fatal A400M crash are known. 
Four of the company's flight test personnel were killed when aircraft MSN-23 came down shortly after taking off from Seville Airport on air the 9th of May, while another two suffered serious injuries. Airbus confirms that the tactical transport which was scheduled to be delivered to the Turkish Air Force next month was making its first flight. We are uh, supporting the technical investigation team which will be set up under the leadership of the Spanish authorities, said Head of Military Aircraft Fernando Alonso in a television interview distributed by Airbus on the 11th of May. Airbus and other suppliers, for example, the power plant suppliers, are there to support this investigation, he added. Responding to the unconfirmed media reports about the potential causes of the aircraft's loss, Alonso says we would uh, all want to know what happened immediately. Unfortunately, this takes time. And to bear with us and let us do our job and commit, uh, they do commit to a full transparency as soon as we have something to tell you. Uh, A first coordination meeting was held by the Spanish authorities on the 10th of May with the crashed A400M's flight data recorder and cockpit voice recorder already having been recovered. Mm. Now, it's interesting. I mean, the the, the A400M, its first flight was in 2009, actually, end Mm. of of 2009. Very new aircraft. Officially went into service 2013. So it's it's not a new, new aircraft that... If you know what I mean by new, new. It's uh, it's not just just started flying. It's been been going a a few years. years. Yeah, yeah. It's um, very sad indeed. It and, you is. Know, it's, um, well, it's and terrible. I really hope that the cockpit voice recorder and everything does give a real indication as to when what went horribly wrong. Again, it's another story where I mean, presumably these pilots, if they're there, if they're the test pilots, they're the they test must pilots. Be very they, experienced. Yes, oh, yes, nobody definitely. will know those aircraft like like the test pilots, really, will they? So, um, um, but I mean, there was uh, there was photos. I mean, there's photos on the Flight Global site here of the crash site, and and the two the two part of the. Uh, two crew that survived because there were six crew in all wasn't there yes and, they, yes. and four sadly lost their lives in yeah. this um, but hopefully the other two will be able to give a, a real indication as to what on earth went wrong it's a shame it's, it's been a really popular aircraft for, for mm-hmm. Airbus on the military side military of things section, you know there's a lot yeah. of air um, um, and this air is a prop plane isn't it yes yes yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's a shame hopefully any more news that we get on mm. this will um, obviously bring as soon as we know yes absolutely Yes, anyway, next story. This is uh, on Flight Global again, and the headline is Spain suspends pre-delivery flights of A400M, obviously linked to uh, the the disaster we were talking about a moment ago. Airbus Defence and Space resumed flight testing of the A400M tactical transport on the 12th of May, just days after four of its personnel were killed in the first accident to involve the type since its flight debut in December 2009. Spain's Defence Ministry is leading an investigation into the cause of the May 9th crash uh, involving the aircraft uh, MSN-23, which happened shortly after its off after its first takeoff from Seville Airport in Spain. Another two Airbus flight test personnel were seriously injured in the incident, which left the transport completely burnt out. The aircraft had been scheduled for delivery to the Turkish Air Force next month. The A400M flight test program continues unless or until any evidence is found uh, which would suggest that it is not safe to fly. Airbus said that after completing a one-hour and 50-minute sortie around Toulouse uh, in Seville, four days after the crash so far no such evidence has emerged whilst planned flight testing with an airbus fleet of three is uh, grizzly development aircraft is set to continue the manufacturer confirms that the spanish military authorities have temporarily suspended the license to undertake flights 
with the production aircraft that are in preparation for delivery. The decision has been reached as a precautionary measure and, in, and pending the accident investigation, it adds. We are working closely with the military authorities as well as our customers to manage this situation, says Airbus, whilst noting assembly of the A400M continues as planned. Airbus Defence and Space notes that its flight test fleet has to to date accumulated over 7,500 hours through more than uh, 27,000 flights whilst existing operators, France, Germany, Malaysia and the UK, have also logged in excess of a combined 2,000 hours in mm. service. So something's it's obviously pr- gone yeah, wrong. Yeah, it's, it's a proven, you know, it's, it's proven mm, that it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a brilliant aircraft. It's mm. just, we don't know. Oh, that sounds like Stuart. That does sound... Is no, that, no, that's that caravan? A, no, that's a Cessna, that's a small Cessna 150. Is it? Okay, it's I not, think. It's not the one you go out in, is it? It could possibly be. <gasps> Oh no! Somebody else flying a plane, Carl. This won't do. <laughs> I know. Terrible, terrible. Right. But no sad news, and hopefully, like I said, uh, they'll find out what went mm. wrong, and yeah. uh, we'll we'll know uh, in the very near uh, yeah, future. Yeah, let's hope so. Yeah, let's yeah. get to the bottom of it as quickly as possible. So, next story. Moving on on Flight Global again. The USAF student pilot uh, test pilots trial the Textron Scorpion and the AT6. Uh, the U.S. Air Force student test pilots recently trialed Textron Airlines Scorpion jet, which uh, I've seen up close, very mm. brilliant, and the Beechcraft AT-6 light attack turboprop, conducting 12 flights in the Scorpion and seven with the AT-6. Uh, Textron Airline Beach and Beechcraft, both owned by Textron, are making the Scorpion uh, and the T-6 aircraft as vers- uh, versatile mission, multi-mission platforms for domestic and international customers. The first Scorpion demonstrator was produced in 2013 and the company hopes to deliver a second one in the second quarter of 2016. Textron says the Scorpion completed three flights per day and has successfully completed all of its missions. After each flight, the Scorpion rapidly returned to the air with an average aircraft turn time of 31 minutes and a best turnaround time of 20 minutes. The company said uh, in a May 14th press release, the AT-6 also turned in an excellent performance uh, for its seven flights with 100% aircraft availability and 100% mission accomplishment. Uh, The demonstrations not only allowed us to showcase the capabilities of the aircraft, but it also allowed us to gather feedback, which has already proven beneficial as we continue to prepare the aircraft for entry into the market, says Beechcraft Defence President Russ Bartlett. Textron Airlines President Bill Anderson says after the students' visit, the Scorpion flew from Wichita to South America to demonstrate its capabilities to undisclosed air force in that region. The Scorpion's 6,627 nautical mile range, a 10-day trip, included 17 sorties and 28 hours of flight time. It conducted six demonstration flights along the way and participated in static displays at the U.S. Defense Department's Southern Command and Central Command Headquarters, both in Florida, and the aircraft returned home in, uh, on May 5th. The Scorpion will make its debut at the Paris Air Show next month as Textron Airline pushes hard to find a launch customer for the surveillance and strike jet. The aircraft will then grow on a European tour, which includes visits to the United Kingdom. Now, this um, this aircraft here, Matt, the yeah. Scorpion, this yeah. uh, we uh, met up and close with that at uh, Riyadh last year at mm. the uh, Royal National Air Tattoo, 
and we interviewed a test pilot of that aircraft. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, which was awesome, and that is that's a that's a mega aircraft to see up close. It really I, I, is. I've just been looking at the stats. Is that I didn't realise it was such a young plane. Mm. I mean, it's literally only the last couple of years that, yeah. it, that it's it's officially gone into service. First flight, in fact, was actually the twelfth of December two thousand and thirteen. So mm. it really is quite new. Just out of curiosity, the picture we're looking at here, it's got um, uh, yeah, of the scorpion. Of the scorpion uh, and the what's, the what's the nose bit? That one What's there. the probe sticking out at the end? I would imagine that's a pylon for some sort of um, obviously either refueling or possibly oh, right, a cool. uh, yeah. a sensor of some description. Because the T six the T six is a, is a prop, isn't it? It's a prop. No, it no, it's a jet. Is it? Yes, it's a jet. Yeah, that picture is confusing me. <laughs> no, it is a jet. It is definitely is it? a jet. Two uh, seater, yeah, two seater jet. Wow. And it's got it's got the uh, V wing. Um, so, what is tail. that on the end? Then it looks like a propeller. No, no, no. That is that is just uh, that is just a, like a refueling type probe on the front of the aircraft. But I think that's on the test aircraft. They have that on because um, they had that on the aircraft we saw at Riyadh last year. Right. And what 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 is as a backup plan? As a, no, it's uh, like a test equipment they have on board. Oh, is he checkering um, air production aircraft and, and to see? But yeah, exactly. Bits and pieces ah. like that. But. Uh, we might see that this year at Riyadh. Fingers crossed. That'd be good. Yeah. So in stark contrast, I mean, that plane's been in service since 1935. What's that? The the, the, the T6? T6, yeah. Yeah, that is an old trainer. Very good. Reliable aircraft. Yeah. And finally retired in 1985. Mm. Well, there we are. Next story. Indeed, yes. Uh, well, Flight Global again, and uh, Airbus helicopter gains approval for the H145M. Airbus Helicopters has gained European Aviation Safety Agency certification for the military variant of its H145 medium twin-engined helicopter. This paves the way for military-type approval of the 3.7-tonne rotorcraft ahead of delivery of an initial two of 15 examples to launch customer uh, the German Air Force before the end of the year. The service intends to use the H145M for Special Forces missions. First deliveries for the type's second customer, the Royal Thai Navy, will commence in 2016, says Airbus Helicopters. The H145M is tailored for a wide range of military operations, including transportation, reconnaissance, search and rescue, fire support and evacuations of wounded personnel. It's a fascinating looking plane, actually. It's uh, it's a bit like the Eurocopter, isn't it? Where it's got the mm. um, the, the the rear rotor encased in a, a sort of like housing, a, yeah, yeah, a yeah. housing, which yeah. is quite which nice. a lot of the new helicopters are Indeed. like that now. Anyway, it's, it's very similar to the air ambulance ah, that yes, we have here yeah, in yeah, the UK. Yeah, of course UK. it is. Yeah, very similar. Paint it yellow. And also like the it. police as well are are lo- are local. Mm. Local um, force uses force those, uses yeah. those as well. We see those up in the air mm. quite a bit. Anyway, here. by using a civil certification for the. H145M, we pursued a low-risk and low-cost approach for our customers, avoiding a costly and uh, duplicative military qualification, says Manfred Merck, H145 Programme Director. The H145M is based on the latest iteration of the long-running Airbus helicopter civil type, previously known as the EC145T2C. There we are, I should have finished the story before we Ah. did. (laughs) It is powered by twin FADEC-equipped turbo... Is it turbo mecha? Turbo mecha, yeah. Turbo mecha Arius 2E engines. It can be fitted with mission equipment that includes a pintle-mounted door gun. Ooh, got to have one of those. Uh, and the ability to carry weapons on external external pylons and electro-optical infrared sensors with targeting capability. It's a very familiar... Now you've said that, actually, you look at the picture, it is. it, it does remind you of, of, plane, of, of rotorcraft that you see 
in service in the air around all here. the time. Yeah, yeah, definitely around here. Like I said, we they have the air ambulance, which you you can see obviously being yellow in colour. Yes, in absolutely. One of those, and uh, the police are black, black with a yes. yellow stripe. They have those. The police, Indeed, yeah. although some of the ones in 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 London and that they they some of them are red and and all sorts. So. But in service with a lot of airlines around mm. the world. Yeah. that one definitely. And if you want to buy one, you can uh, pick one of those up for around about five and a half million oh, US dollars. Oh, yeah. yeah, pocket change then. That is. Yeah. Next story then. <laughs> uh, Flight Global again. Poland begins evaluation tests of the H225M Carousel. Mm-hmm. Uh, Poland uh, has commenced performance verification tests of the Airbus helicopters H225M Caracal mm-hmm. as part of the effort to acquire a total of 50 of the new rotorcraft for all three branches of its armed forces. Mm. Conducted uh, at its 33rd air transport base in Powitz, the trials are in a final set, uh, step in the evaluation process ahead of a likely contract signing later this year, assuming the 11-ton class helicopter meets the claims of its manufacturer. Warsaw on the 21st of April announced that it had selected the Caracal for the multi-role helicopter requirement ahead of the Sikorsky S-70I Blackhawk and the S-70B Seahawk and the Augusta Westland AW149. Airbus helicopters provided an H-225M destined for the Brazilian Navy uh, for the evaluation efforts that was armed with uh, twin door-mounted machine guns and uh, the airframe displayed other possible armaments including rocket pods and the Eurotorp MU-90 torpedo. During the tests, 32 parameters covering four main areas will be verified. These include platform commonality, including component interchangeability, helicopter design, onboard equipment, and performance. Performance characteristics to be checked include speed, ceiling, endurance, operational radius, and payload. Uh, the H225M will be flown in both daylight and night, and in oh. visual, meteorological, and instrument meteorological conditions, Ooh. meaning bad weather. I see. And during these missions, Polish pilots with combat experience will be present in the cockpit. Poland has assigned 28 individuals to the trials, drawn from both the military and the air defence ministry. Finalisation of the, uh, the $13 billion um, or $3.5 billion contract is anticipated in the third quarter, with deliveries commencing in 2017. Mm. Another... another uh, Brilliant looking helicopter again. Mm. Um, obviously, a carrier, troop carrier, as well as uh, a sort of a, a platform for um, missiles and, and torpedoes and such. So, it could be a, a marine sort of helicopter as well for yeah. going offshore and uh, sort of a submarine sort of searching helicopter. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. So, last story. Last story. Uh, and it's actually uh, not what you've got in front of you. Um, oh. Only because uh, yeah, it's all right. It's it, it's same story. Uh, but this is ah. uh, on the Huffington, Huffington Post. Oh, yes, yep, yep. Um, only because it's easier to read. That's the only reason why I'm doing, doing that. And the headline is, UK Typhoon Fighter Jets Intercept Yet More Russian Bombers Heading Towards Britain. Two Typhoon Fighter Jets were launched from RAF Lossimath to intercept Russian bombers heading towards the UK, the Ministry of Defence has confirmed. How dare they? I know, again, it's uh, the, the Russian beer, beer, sorry, not beer, Bear aircraft were escorted away from Britain's area of interest, uh, but at no stage crossed into UK sovereign airspace. A spokesman said RAF quicks, RAF's quick reaction alert Typhoon fighter aircraft were launched today from RAF Lossiemouth after unidentified aircraft were tracked flying towards UK airspace. 
Um, the aircraft were identified as Russian bear aircraft, which were escorted by the RAF Typhoon fighters until they were out of, U- of the UK area of interest. At no time did the Russian military aircraft cross into UK sovereign airspace. The RAF Typhoons were also operating under NATO command. The Russian planes were spotted flying north of Scotland towards the UK. They were in international airspace throughout the incident. The bear bombers were not considered a threat at any time. The incident is the latest in a string of approaches to Britain by Russian planes and ships in recent months. In April, typhoons out of Lossiemouth were again intercepting bear bombers flying near UK airspace hours after HMS Argyll was deployed to monitor a destroyer and two other ships from the country as they passed through the English Channel. Putin's long-range bombers could collide with British civilian aircraft. Concerns have grown over the appearance of Russian long-range bear bombers off Bournemouth and the coast of Cornwall. In February, former Armed Forces Head Lord Stirrup said, we are seeing the possibility of mid-air collision, not between, I think, RAF and Russian aircraft, but between Russian aircraft and civilian aircraft increasing. On Monday, David Learman, operations and safety editor of Flight Global's publication, said the danger of such collisions existed, particularly as the Russian planes tended to switch off, switch their radio frequency identification transponders off on certain missions. Mm. Yeah, again. They're right, though, aren't they? I mean, yeah. the, the biggest concern, because obviously the airspace is being monitored by radar as far as um, military operations are concerned. But as you say, you and your little test plane, not, um, I mean, hopefully they'd be long intercepted before they got anywhere near here. Mm. But I mean, I can see what they mean by that because you won't necessarily have. If their radios and squawks and everything have all been turned off, you as a civilian pilot would have no when, idea. Unless you saw them. Unless you physically saw them. they are huge. Them. But, well, uh, but they're also quite quick, probably. I mean, by the time you've realised there's something in your flight But they never, part, like the story says, they never actually trespass, or never actually step into mm. um, sovereignty airspace. Mm. So they're kind they're of on the... Flirting yeah, the they're just Yeah, yeah just, sort of, um, just wingtip sort of uh, brushing against the uh, the borders as such. There is definitely something going on here, yes. listeners. Yes. Something not right. I'm so sorry. there we bring the military segment to Indeed. a close. Yes. And we've got uh, a segment from Pilot Piss. Yeah, shall we play that out now? And we're going to play it. I haven't actually had a chance to listen to no, this yet. We shall um, do that now. He, Pip sent me through that uh, segment last night. Mm. So we're going to play that for you right now. And now, it's time to visit the cockpit and join the man who puts the S in safe. It's the plane safety from the flight deck segment with Captain Pip. Hello everyone, it's Pip here, back with you this week after just about recovering from my cold last week. And in this segment, I want to talk about something really complicated. So we might look at Fermi's last theorem, a mathematical puzzle that's been confusing mathematicians for nearly 400 years. No, no, that's not complicated enough. Maybe we could talk about the recent discovery of the Higgs boson and how it gives matter mass. That's pretty complicated, but not complicated enough. No, no, I'm going to go all the way. We're going to push human understanding to the very limits. And I'm going to talk about today European flight time limitations for pilots. Trust me, there is nothing more complicated than our European FTLs. Now, of course, I'm being a little bit facetious. There's probably one guy in Brussels who understands it, but I'm sure he's the only one. 
Now, what am I talking about? Well, flight time limitations is that set of rules which we operate by, which tells us how much we can fly within a given period. It tells our companies how they can schedule us, how much they can use us, how many flights we can do, how many hours we can work, this sort of thing. And why do we have any sorts of rules that govern this? Well, you know, we're humans. We get tired. We have needs. We need to sleep. We need to rest. When you're doing safety critical work, like flying aeroplanes or driving coaches, well, you need to apply some common sense at the very minimum. And this is all about fatigue risk management, or at least in theory it should be, about reducing the chances of us operating uh, an aeroplane in a state of fatigue, which is something I'm probably going to be talking about a little bit in the next episode of Plane Safety Podcast. Now, let me give you a basic overlay of, of how it works. So at the highest level, we have EASA, the European Aviation Safety Agency, EASA. That's the, the European organisation who implements a set of operating procedures that w- we at airlines and at national level have to adopt and abide by. So that's EASA. So they lay down their flight time limitations, which are by and large then adopted by the national authorities. So in my case, the UK CAA. Now, it's possible that there will be some minor differences between what the CAA adopt and what EASA have put out but it could never be less restrictive than what is laid out by EASA and then it's up to the airlines then to adopt and implement their own flight time limitation scheme in accordance with their national authority and again there might be some minor differences but it can't be less restrictive they can always introduce their own rules which are more restrictive i.e give the pilot more time off for instance or limit how much they can work but it's It certainly can't be any less restrictive than that laid down at the national and European level. Now, here's part of the problem. The flight time limitations from EASA, or JAA as they used to be, do seem to change on a fairly regular basis. You know, it wasn't so many years ago that JAA, the Joint Aviation Authority, changed into EASA. And we had JAA, or JAR Ops, went out the window, then we got EASA Ops. Broadly the same thing, a few differences. And now we're changing again. We're going to EASA Air Ops. And the flight time limitations contained within that are to be adopted by sometimes spring next year. Now, most airlines have already adopted them. We certainly have at Safe Jets. But this is a whole new set of rules which really start to take into account fatigue risk management. The rules we had before, Subpart Q, it was called. Uh, it was a pretty okay set of rules probably just picked at random by some guys in Brussels, but it didn't really take into account any scientific data or or practical data regarding how we as humans work, the risks of fatigue. And now this new set of rules that are coming in spring next year, that apparently does. And this new set of rules, EASA part FTLs, are contained in one handy 13-page document, which you can easily Google if you want to have a look at yourself. But this is what the airlines will have to adopt and implement. And this will form the basis of how their scheduling departments will use us as pilots. So let's go through and have a a look at some of the key parts of this document. And first of all, if your airline has an active fatigue risk management system in place, well, this will give you a little bit more leeway over uh, some of the rules contained within the document. An active fatigue risk management system will be part of a safety department, for instance, And it will be an active ongoing process that is continually seeking to identify potential areas of risk associated with fatigue. It will have as its basis scientific principles and factual knowledge 
of how fatigue affects us. It will have ongoing training processes to highlight to our managers and to us as pilots fatigue risks. It will have a list of mitigating factors and remedial actions to be put in place if a pilot does report in fatigued. And a whole bunch of other stuff. Now we at SafeJet Airlines, and most of the big airlines I think, will have a fatigue risk management system in place. So let's imagine we're trying to work out what our maximum flight duty time will be on any given particular day. Now the first thing we need to know, our starting point is, are we as a crew what we call acclimatised? And that means acclimatised to the local time zone. And the general rule is if you are within a two-hour time zone period of your home base, then you're considered to be acclimatised. And there's a table contained within this document that will enable you to work out if you're acclimatised. And it's based on the number of time zones away from your home base you are, the time elapsed since reporting for duty, And it's quite a complicated table and it will lead you into one of several categories which also includes an unknown category. So you might find yourself in a category of being unknown whether you're acclimatised or not and that will have a bit of an impact on how many hours you can work that day. But let's pretend that we're acclimatised and for me personally that's pretty much always the case. The sort of flying I'm doing around Europe I rarely go more than two or three hours difference in time zones. Occasionally I'll find myself in mid-Russia over the winter where we might be GMT plus six hours. So having established that we are an acclimatised crew, we can then go into another table and see what our basic maximum flight duty will be that day. And this is based on the time that we're reporting at work and the number of sectors or the number of flights we intend to be flying that day. And this, I believe, is a little different from other parts of the world. For instance, in the States, in FAA land, their duty times are, I believe I'm right in saying, are based more on absolute flight times. So they will have a limit as to how much actual flight time they'll be able to do in any given day. Whereas our European FTLs are more looking at total duty time. So the time we report for work in the morning at the airport to the time we clock off at the end of the day. And the basic flight duty period, total duty that we can work on a given day, if we're starting any time between 6am in the morning and 29 minutes past 1, if we're flying one to two sectors in a day, then it's a 13-hour total work period that we can do. And that starts to reduce with more sectors. So, for instance, if we're flying three sectors, that will reduce by half an hour to 12 and a half hours. And that goes all the way down to nine hours total if you're flying 10 sectors. Quite who's flying 10 sectors in nine hours, I don't know. But in theory, that's what it is. And then again, that starts to reduce as you start reporting later in the day. So if, for instance, you're reporting between four o'clock and 4.30, well, that basic 13 hours is reduced to 11 and a half hours for one to two sectors. And that goes all the way down to... An 11-hour day if you're reporting between 5 p.m. and 5 a.m. for one to two sectors, that's 11 hours. But that's the basic flight duty periods. And corresponding to that, we also have minimum rest periods, which, again, it starts to get quite complicated, but it depends on exactly what your duty time was preceding that rest period. But to put simply, at least at safe jets, the rest period, the minimum rest period, has to be at least equal to the duty period that preceded it, but in no case less than 11 hours. There are some exceptions in which you can have a reduced rest period. Now, there are a couple of mechanisms by which those basic flight time duty periods can be extended on a particular day. 
And again, it starts to get a little bit confusing, but schedulers can increase that. Let's say you had a basic 13-hour duty for a two-sector day. Your schedulers can, in fact, increase that by up to one hour. There are limits on how often they can do that, and there are limits then on how much rest you need to be given back as a reward for doing that extra hour. So that can be extended from 13 hours up to 14 hours. You could then have another hour with the permission of the captain. This is called commander's discretion. So this is to be used for unseen circumstances. So let's say there was a delay or the incoming flight was late or whatever it is. You can then ask the commander if he's willing to go into what we call discretion, extend that duty time by one hour. And he will then talk to his crew, not just the, his co-pilot, but he'll also talk to the cabin crew because they're also governed by flight time limitations. And if they all agree, then with the commander's discretion, they can then extend again for one hour. And as before, there are limitations on as to exactly how often you can you can do this. I think off the top of my head, you can do this not more than two times in seven consecutive days. And if you do, then again, you have to uh, be given increased rest time and you have to fill out a report each time, which gets sent to the company and then also sent to the national authority. So in theory, using commander's discretion is uh, shouldn't be something you're doing all that often. But having said that, I might be wrong on this, but the impression I get from friends and colleagues working in other airlines is that maybe sometimes that rule, the one-hour commander's discretion rule, is actually used and counted on as part of the, the daily scheduling plan, which is really pushing the spirit of that rule. As I say, this is the commander's discretion is there to account for unforeseen delays during the day. You can't pre-plan your day using that one hour's discretion. That's not what that law's about. But I do sometimes get the impression that uh, sometimes it's being used in that way. And then we can then start to look at the WOCLs. What does WOCL stand for? W-O-C-L, Work Outside Circadian Low. The circadian low is that uh, rhythm, that 24-hour rhythm that your uh, body works to. And the circadian low, there are actually two of these every day. You have a circadian low in the early hours of the morning between about 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. And then there's another one in the afternoon. This is where you, know, where you just naturally start to feel a bit tired, so typically after lunch. you know, If you ever wonder why you're always feeling tired and have a little sleep on the sofa after lunch, that's just part of your body's natural rhythm. And at least as far as the circadian low in the a.m. period, that 2 to 6 a.m. period, if you're starting work during that period, then that can start to have um, a knock-on effect with regards to your how much rest you're getting. So you recall that in the last segment I mentioned that I'd had two wockles in a row, two starts between 2am and 6am. And what that meant for me was that following that I then had to have 36 hours off, which includes two local nights. So I was in Madrid at the time, so I had to have two nights off, 36 hours minimum total off. So that's a sort of a brief look at the daily flight duty periods. And then there are also rules governing accumulated um, duty periods over the courses of weeks and years. So to give you a quick flavour, uh, you can't work more than 60 duty hours in any consecutive seven days. And then you have a limit of 110 duty hours in any consecutive 14 days and 190 hours in any consecutive 28 days. And then when we look at flight hours, I said earlier that we don't really look at flight hours too much on a daily basis, but when we're starting to look at accumulated flight hours over the year, then we do have some limits that need to be observed. 
So in any consecutive 28 days, we shouldn't be flying more than 100 flight hours. And a flight hour is generally blocks off, so pushing back from the stand to blocks on, arriving at the gate. It's not flight time, it's total time at which the airplane is capable of moving under its own power. So 100 hours in 28 days, or 900 hours in any calendar year, uh, with the caveat that it can be up to 1,000 hours of flight time in any consecutive 12 calendar months, are slightly different. So 900 hours a year, basically. Now, for me, in my operation, I don't work anything like that. But if you go to most of the big airlines, Ryanair, EasyJet, British Airways, they'll all be getting pretty close to that magic 900 hours. And then if we want to get really complicated, we could start looking at standby time, how that is incorporated into your flight duty times. Basically, as I understand it, any standby time is 25% of your duty time. So a one hour standby at home will equate to 15 minutes of actual duty time. We then have things called split duties where you might fly a couple of sectors in the morning, then you'll have an eight-hour break, a split duty, before doing the return sector at night time. There's a whole bunch of rules surrounding that. There's also rules contained in the FTLs regarding uh, nutrition and being given adequate opportunity to consume food and drink. It all starts to get very complicated, and if I'm totally honest, just a little bit boring as well. But I will put my hand up and admit that I'm certainly no guru when it comes to flight time limitations. There are certainly some people out there who are very passionate about it. I'm a little bit more relaxed. I know that uh, our schedulers are doing a good job of keeping an eye on all this. And the automatic scheduling systems that we use uh, will not, or in theory at least, should not schedule us for a duty that will exceed any of these limits. Because it's built into the system. It's the operating rules of that system. So it shouldn't put us in a position where we're doing anything illegal. Because if you do have some sort of accident or incident and it's found that you were operating outside of the FTLs, well, then it's going to be your neck on the line. Anyway, I think that's, uh, I think I've bored you enough with flight time limitations. I'll be back. Well, I'm not sure if I'll be back next week. I'm off on holiday uh, the following week. So maybe I'll see you next week, maybe not. In any case, take care and fly safe. Pilot Pip signing off. Over to Carlos and Matt. Oh, my head hurts. There was a lot of big words. Yes. At, the, at the beginning of that segment, there was a lot of large... I, <laughs> I heard the word Higgs boson, and I thought, what? Huh? Pardon? <laughs> Have I strummed the realms of the unknown here? <laughs> wow. Scrambling to try and get Google and type in I know, and, and I find know. out what, what's, what's what that these got to do mean. With aviation? I know. Yeah. What, wow. Well, thanks for that, Pip. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, thanks for Just sending say, us a segment in, got, as always. Yeah. I need to lie down now. Is it, is it, are we nearly finished? No, we're <laughs> nearly there. So, no, thanks uh, thanks for that, Pip, for yes. sending in another segment. Yes. Excellent. Excellent. And don't always. forget, you can find uh, Pilot Pip over at his show, the Plane mm. Safety Podcast, Indeed. on iTunes. You can uh, find him on there, search him on there, and um, download his weekly show. He tries to get one out each week, but obviously, as we always say, Pip is a hugely busy international pilot star, and he's um, he's always well, he's always in many parts of Europe, really, isn't he? Every he is, week. Yeah. So, yep. So, catch him there, Plane Safety Podcast, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, thanks for that, Pip, and uh, we'll hopefully have a segment again from Pip next yeah. week. So, just a little bit of uh, air show news then uh, to finish off the show this week. Um, one of the recent stories uh, which came out at the end of this week mm. uh, was that uh, 2015 will be the final display season for the Avro Vulcan XH558. Really sad this is, yeah. The Trust uh, on Friday, which was yesterday, the Vulcan to the Sky Trust, 
announced that the 2015 display season will be the final one for the Avril Vulcan XH558. The Trust plans a fitting farewell season displaying the aircraft to as many uh, big audiences as possible before retiring the aircraft in the autumn this year. Very no, that's sad. That's very sad indeed. Is it financial then why they're laying it out? Or is it just because it's, it's it's structurally it's getting sort of beyond I think the economic the, I mean, the aircraft is, you know, it, it takes a lot to keep this aircraft mm, going. I bet. Um, and, um, I mean, the, the, the plane itself, XH558, was the first Mark II to enter service really? with the RAF. Gosh. And uh, also, it also was the last one to leave to the leave RAF in service in 93, yeah. Wow. Um, I, I mean, I, if you haven't seen I mean, I was lucky enough to see it at Waddington. Um, they had a, quite a big display with that. And as I say, I, 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 I say it every time we mention this aircraft, it, it's a noise you've never heard before. It is so loud. It was, uh, we'd actually wandered back to the coach when this was play, when, when it was f- sort of flying about. And I mean, the ground, but bearing in mind how high it was, the ground was still shaking as it, as it sort of flew across. I mean, it's an amazing. Amazing aircraft, and very, very sad to hear that it's um, coming to the end of its display life. Very really. sad. Mm. That's a bit going to be a massive loss. It I mean, is. Um, they have said that uh, the 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 trust site says that the XH five five eight's future appears to lie at the centerpiece of a new educational and engineering training project at Robin Hood Doncaster Sheffield Airport. Mm. Um, hopefully that should mean that the uh, airframe is cared for under cover and also serves as an impressive tool to generate much-needed skills in the engineering sector. So, I mean, hopefully they'll um, they'll hang the aircraft, keep you know keep her in, in good condition, which I'm sure they will. Yeah, um, it's just not the same though, is it? Yeah, it'll be a different. Definitely next year will be a different air show season without um, without having the Vulcan the there. Vulcan. Yeah, real so sad. Other pieces of news. Um, Organisers of the RAF Cosford Air Show this week confirmed details of uh, display markings, uh, marking or displays marking the 70th anniversary of VE Day, planned for Sunday the 14th of June. Mm. Uh, along with the exciting news that the University of Wolverhampton will be sponsoring the VE 70 theme at the show, um, that's going to be an awesome air show. Loads yeah. of aircraft penned in for that mm. um, particular display. I, I think virtually. Any air show, any any air show worth its merit will be covering VE Day. Mm. I would imagine in some way, whether it be with Spitfires or whatever. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah. I mean, it's 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 a it's an event worth marking. Certainly, definitely. Yeah. Uh, the B seventeen Flying Fortress Sally B is going to lead a poignant victory salute at the in uh, in uh, the War Museum at Duxford's VE Day ah, anniversary yes. air show. Yeah, cool. Um, so the Sally B is going to have a, a fly past to commemorate the 70th anniversary of yeah. Victory in Europe Day. Um, it's going to be doing a fly past, I think, with the Spitz and the Hurricane. So Lovely. that should be really good as well. Yeah, quite bad. So there we go. Then uh, we're going to bring the show to a close. Episode yeah. number 61 yep. of the Plain Talking UK podcast. Where can people find us, Matt? Uh, if you want to look up the website, it is www.plaintalkinguk.com. Plain spelled P-L-A-N-E. Uh, don't forget to look us up on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash Plain Talking UK. And on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash um, Plain Talking UK. We have got a couple of quick shout-outs as mm. well before we do go. Mm. Um, on our Facebook page, we've had um, quite a bit of uh, activity in the last week. Loads of new likes, which is all, always great. Always we do like that. We do like that. 
And we're just going to have a quick uh, mention, a hello to Ray Davis. Ah, yes. Uh, one, of our, one of our good friends on Facebook. Mm. And um, he, uh, he's comment, commented on our Facebook page whilst we've been doing the show this morning. Yes. yes. Apparently, Ray is standing by at the holding point for the release of the episode. <laughs> wow. <laughs> love it, love it. Yes. It'll, be, it'll be online soon, Ray. Don't, it don't will, panic. Yes, don't, don't panic. panic. Um, he'll already know this because <laughs> he'll be listening to it. <laughs> he'll, be, he'll be listening, yes, definitely. <laughs> Um, oh we've had uh, we've had quite a few new likes this week um, on on of the show. Mm. Just flicking, I'm just going through the feeds here. There's loads of um, uh, new likes on the show. One mm. of the big uh, places that's liked this is uh, Global Pilot Life. Oh yes. dot com, who yeah, cool. uh, added us to a top ten, which is yes, quite we, good. Often we shall cover that in more we detail cover next that week. Soon, yes. yeah, yeah. Um, and a hello to Dino Walthorton as well. Yeah. Um, and also uh, Tina Green, hello, and Gibbs as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Justin Dickinson, hello to you guys. David Barnshaw and Alison Standring as well, hello to you. Philip Davis and Stephen Corley, hello to you. And uh, thanks for liking our Facebook page. Very it's very kind. And also a big hello as well to one of the um, really uh, good contributors to our Facebook page, um, and of great news as well, David Harris. Mm-hmm. So hello to David Harris. I know David listens to the show. So hello to you, David Harris. I know you're listening. And uh, yeah, keep sending us those um, interesting little news snippets yeah. on uh, Facebook. And please do get in touch, guys, if you want to, uh, if you've got any ideas for the show, anything uh, that you'd like us to cover, uh, don't uh, hesitate to uh, to get in touch. Uh, we like your feedback, whether yes. it be good or bad. We yes. don't mind. It's all about trying to improve the show and make sure it covers the things you want to hear. So uh, make sure you get in touch. So join us next week then for episode Indeed. 62 Absolutely of the 62. Plain Talking yes, UK I'll have forgotten podcast. that by next week. There's no I point know. in doing that. But, uh, <laughs> anyway, this, this, this bit, this will... My, uh, Carl will just glaze over when I say this, but uh, in our area, there's a certain very big... <sighs> I know, certain big derby going on. Oh, hello. What, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. There's a big derby going on uh, between Norwich and Ipswich, which is at home. One of my best friend has been lucky enough to actually get to go there. So uh, I shut up. <laughs> so uh, hopefully, uh, I should imagine Geordie is, is uh, absorbing a rather amazing atmosphere at the moment. But uh, yes, and uh, I'm, I'm going to show my true colours and say, "Come on, Norwich, on the ball, city." Yeah, oh. and I've been officially I'm just waking up <laughs> from a long sleep. Yes, thanks for that, Matt. <laughs> Always a pleasure. Always a, a pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> right, so take care, guys and girls. Thanks for listening to the show. And uh, from me, Carlos, it's a really sunny, quite nice day. It is. And yeah. weekend, goodbye. And from Matt, it's also goodbye. Goodbye.